Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. In addition to your support, we welcome your feedback. Please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or by emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We're here today with Scott Serval, a Virginia State Senator, a Democrat from District 36, former delegate in the Virginia House of Delegates from 2010 to 2016, and a co-founding partner at Serval, Isaacs, and Levy. Scott is a former co-chair of the Mount Vernon Democratic Committee and former chair of the Fairfax County Democratic Committee. He currently sits in the Virginia State Senate on three committees, the General Laws and Technology Committee, Local Government Committee, and the Rehabilitation and Social Services Committee. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm great. Happy after last night. Yeah. What happened last night, Scott? Uh, well, last night was kind of historic. Um, the uh, Right now, the well, first of all, Ralph Northam, Justin Fairfax, and Mark Herring all won their elections handily, and... The, the really historic part is in the House of Delegates. Uh, in the House of Delegates, the Democrats have picked up probably at least 15 seats, although there's looks like three or four races that are going into recounts, and there's some there's some numbers that are moving around right now as we speak as a canvas takes place. But right so now, the, for the listeners who don't know, the, the <clears throat> names you just mentioned are Governor, Attorney General, and they're all Democrats. That's correct. Okay. And then, and then how does the increase of seats in the Virginia legislature influence the total majority? Well, the, um, the Virginia House of Delegates is a pretty, as, as many bodies are today, a pretty hyper-gerrymandered. Mm-hmm. And um, even though Virginia's voted for Barack Obama twice and Hillary Clinton, uh, the House of Delegates, the Republicans had a 32-seat majority, 32-vote majority in the House of Delegates until last night. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much just got entirely erased. It's either going to be 51-49 or 50-50, or the Democrats may even uh, go into the majority right now, depending on how these recounts go. So, in the House, but not the State Senate. Yeah, the State Senate's 21-19 to 19 Republican um, controlled, and uh, uh, the Democrats had the majority there for about, I don't know, a four-year period about six years ago. But mm-hmm. we haven't been in the majority in the Senate for, um, except for that one period um, since uh, probably around 2000. So, uh, Scott, getting into the interview, the first question I generally ask to kick this thing off, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Um, well, you know, I mean, I, I, got into, um, I got into this because I like helping people solve problems. I mean, that's what I do every day in my law practice. I represent a lot of individuals with real people kind of problems. And what attracted me to serving the legislature is that you're able to kind of do the same thing, but for thousands and thousands of people in your district or a lot of people outside your district in the entire state. And so, um, you know, I see a lot of problems and I, I try to get them fixed. 
So, um, I mean, I go over some specific bills I've passed that had a big year last year on a couple things. Let's but, talk about that. Yeah. What what sort of accomplishments did you uh, did the governor sign into law that you uh, helped lead the charge on? Well, last year there were two two really significant bills. Number one was it had to do with the Alexandria sewer, and um, do you represent Alexandria? No. Um, That's district. another former guest on Public Interest Podcast, Senator Adam Evan. Right. Yeah, Adam and I kind of got sideways with each other on this bill because he is the city and I don't. I'm downstream of the – I represent Mount Vernon, which is everything downstream of the city. And um, Alexandria, being an old town, has a very old sewer that was built in the 1800s. And back then they thought it was really smart to just combine water out of people's toilets with water on the street and just dump it in the river. Mm-hmm. And it's called a combined sewer. And um, the EPA has required jurisdictions all over the country to start cleaning those up. In D.C., they're actually spending a couple billion dollars to do that on the Anacostia right now. They're digging a big tunnel underground. So at the current, uh, at present, there is raw sewage being dumped into the Potomac River. Yeah, Alexandria dumps about 150, I think, it's either 150 or 180 million gallons of raw sewage into the Potomac River every year. Um, Anytime it rains more than a tenth of an inch, raw sewage goes into the Potomac. And... The city wanted to study the issue for about 14 years and then propose a solution. And uh, that was unacceptable to me. And so I put in legislation that uh, my, my initial bill said they, they had 10 years to fix it. Um, there was a Republican senator down downriver from me who heard about the whole thing, got very offended. He was chairman of the Agriculture and Environment Committee. And so he just actually, to be clear, if he's downriver, <coughs> that means he's receiving the human fecal matter from Alexandria and right. his riverfront properties. Um, yeah, I mean, the city of Alexandria people will tell you that, the, that it probably dissipates by the time it gets very far down, but still, it's it's disgusting. Right. <laughs> and, um, I swam in that river, by the way, so yep. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, and so he, he saw it, and he took my bill, and he made it even harsher. He put in a bill that gave him three years to fix it. We ended up negotiating a, a seven-year solution. Interesting. So a Republican colleague of yours wanted to expedite regulations yep. that would cost more money. Yep. It was all, It was a very weird situation because the Republicans in the House and the Senate were very keen on pushing, holding Alexandria's feet to the fire and being more aggressive. And... The Alexandria delegation, which is mainly dominated by you know liberal Democrats, obviously, were pushing back, trying to buy more time, and so isn't that usually kind of a reversal yes, of roles there? It's, it's absolutely because environmentalists are usually the liberals, but here the was, environmentally responsible yep. thing was pushed by Republicans. You're a Democrat, right? Why were you in favor of doing the traditionally environmentally friendly thing, and then why were your liberal colleagues just north of you opposed to it? Um. Well. Well, the first, the big question is why hasn't the city dealt with it? I mean, from my, from my point of view, the city just hadn't dealt with the issue. They'd, they'd had the chance. Fairfax County fixed its combined sewer back in the 70s. Did they need more funds from the state to match? Um, they, they would tell you they want money. I mean, Alexandria is a pretty wealthy jurisdiction. It's about, hundred and I think, a $180 million problem to fix. I mean, they could easily, um, you know, raise sewer rates or bond it off. The, the, the money wasn't an issue. They... They're trying to get more money, and we're going to try and see if we can get them some state money. But money really wasn't the issue. The, 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 the problem is just it's a lot of disruption. If you're going to go in there and fix this problem, you've got to dig up a lot of streets. There's a lot of engineering you have to do. You have to get permission from the Army Corps of Engineers and, and um, all kinds of federal agencies. And it's just it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like, you know, the city, I think the city was just dragging its feet also because they have other priorities. They'd like to take their capital money, and, and they want to build a new metro station. They thought that was a higher priority. They, they have some schools they want to build, which they think, they think is more important. 
And from my point of view, you know, getting human waste out of the river should be the biggest, more important than anything. Right. And so, um, you know, I, that's why, you know, my client, my constituents are, are downstream and, and they think it's disgusting. And it was, you know, there was bipartisan. I had lots of conservative Republicans in my district come up to me and say, thank you for pushing that. Clean water is important. It's, now, it's here's issue. a question. Yeah. You're going to face ele- uh, an election in a few years from now. Yep. Do you, do, oh, by the way, is it the primary that's competitive or the general? For you, um, well, um, I didn't have a primary last time. Okay, so um, it's the general. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, anybody's welcome to run against me, but in the general election, I won, I think, by twenty-three percent. And um, my district, I think, typically votes over sixty percent for Democrats in statewide races. So, so I was just asking that because you have Republicans who are grateful for this sort of action. I was yeah. wondering if they would actually put their monkey where their mouth. Yeah, is. and I've always gotten, I've always gotten a little bit of crossover votes. I mean. Uh, you know, most most of my constituents kind of see me as a straight straight shooter. I mean, I'm, I mean, even though I was chairman of the Democratic committee, and mm-hmm. you know, I had a different role back then. Um, you know, I mean, one of the reasons I passed I passed more bills last session than any other Democrat in the entire legislature, and part of the reason for that is because I have relationships with, with Republicans on the other sides of the aisle, and I'm able to. Is that unusual? Of, what do have such bipartisan support for legislation in Richmond? N- no, I mean, you know, right now. Both bodies are controlled by Republicans, and so you can't pass a bill without getting Republican votes. It's impossible. So, right. if if you want to be effective down there, then you have to be able to work with them. Uh-huh. So, um, and you know, a lot of times, especially in the Senate where we're twenty one nineteen, I mean, you know, we need each other. It's a very close environment, and you know, a lot of the bills we vote on are not partisan bills, and so, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to collaborate, and you know. So it sounds like you'd say that Richmond is a lot less partisan than Washington. Oh yeah, oh, there's no question about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, <clears throat> um, do you have former colleagues from the, the Virginia uh, legislature that now serve in Congress? Yeah, uh, Don McEachin, uh, he I served with him in the Senate for two years, and when I was in the House, he was in the Senate, but he just got elected. And how uh, how do you and, suppose uh, they were- Scott Taylor? He's got elected. Republican just got elected the second district down in Virginia Beach. I served so, with him for about four years. So, have you ever spoken to them about how the hyperpartisanship of Washington contrasts with what? they were doing in Richmond, and does that actually change the way they legislate and act as an elected official? I haven't really talked to them about that, but, you know, I mean, I can, I can just see it from the outside. I mean, you know, we, we, we get things done in, in Richmond. I mean, you know, and I think part of it's due to the fact that we're a part-time legislature. I mean, I mean, your, um, your, your listeners are probably mostly from Maryland, I guess. And in a D.C. metro area. Okay, and so, but, you know, Maryland's in the same situation. I mean, when, when you're a part-time legislator and you're relying on a real job for your ordinary, for your income. When you go down to session, you know, you want to get everything done and get home so you can get back to making money. I mean, if we don't resolve our budget, we don't pass bills, we don't end our session, it costs... You make about 12000 a year? Is no, no, I make about... Uh, Senate salary is 18000 a year. 18000 a year. Yeah, and we get an office allowance, small office allowance, and we benefits and stuff like that. But, but if you're not, you know, if you're not home making money, um, you know, it's bad for your family, right? So... Right. You know, we, we tend to get our budget done. We tend to, we, we tend to fi- figure our bills out, you know, by our deadlines. Um, if there's something that's really complicated, we kick it off to a study commission. We look at it over 12 months and then bring it back after it's been he- more heavily vetted. But, you know, the part-time legislature, I think, model really forces people to compromise and get things done a lot more than Congress, where they can just pass some continuing resolution and keep getting their salary as a congressman and just keep kicking the can down the road. I mean, that's... So. Well, you mentioned that you like solving problems and that you have that opportunity in your legal practice here right. at, uh, in your own firm. 
why and, and and obviously you just mentioned that you make more money in your firm than you do as an elected official. Sure. So if the idea is solving problems and providing for your family, why did you ever run in the first place? Um, well, I've always had an interest in, in policy and politics. Uh, my mother worked in Congress for 28 years. My grandparents were pretty active in politics up here in Northern Virginia. And you're a 12th generation Virginian, is that correct? Yeah. I'm, so hundreds it, of years we're talking. Here. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm half. Um, my, my father's my father's family they were Jews and they came down from Brooklyn back around the uh, turn of the century. I mean, I'm sorry, in, in 1936 they came to Fairfax and my mother's twelfth generation. That's my mother's family well, revolution. My, yeah, my mother's family goes way back to the 1600s, but my father's family they came, they all came over you know during after the Russian pogroms in the turn of the century, but they came to Virginia in the 30s. But but yeah, no, it's um, but you know I I I got I got more interested in um, state policy. During college, mm-hmm. uh, I went to James Madison University, and it was right in the middle of the first George Bush recession for his father, George Herbert Walker Bush, and our school just got creamed, and that got me more focused on Richmond. And then the, you mean there was state funding for James Madison University that was reduced yeah. under George Herbert Walker Bush's administration? No, I mean because of the recession. Okay. During George Herbert Walker Bush's administration, administration yeah, in like 1990, 91, something like that. Virginia budget cratered, and Governor Wilder, to patch the budget hole, he announced he was going to be the only governor in the country to uh, balance his budget without raising taxes because he wanted to run for president. And so we got big tuition increases. There's a hiring freeze, a teacher salary freeze. They cut programs. Mm-hmm. We got actually tuition supplements. We got charged extra money for second semester because mm-hmm. the state was yanking so much money out of the schools. And that really got my attention focused on Richmond. And the president of the university saw some of the stuff I was doing and suggested that I become a governor's fellow right after I graduated, and I went down to Richmond under Doug Wilder, and I was a governor's fellow for about uh, three or four months during the summer of 2000, I mean, the summer of 1993, and that got me a lot more interested in state policy, mm-hmm. and so that, that sort of tweaked my interest, but I didn't like start getting active locally politically until George W. Bush, after uh, Iraq and all the money started to get spent on the Iraq War, that that was when I started to get more active again back in two thousand one and two. So somewhat born more of frustration than from some innate passion for. Well, I tell you what, well, yeah, but you know, I, I can tell you when it happened. Um, I was sitting there watching the news one night, and I saw the very first Iraq War supplemental come through. It was eighty seven billion dollars, and I saw in the news that George Bush came and asked for eighty seven billion dollars. And my head exploded. And I wrote a letter to the editor of the Washington Post, which you can go find it, it's still there, where I, I said, this is, with $87 billion, you could fix the mixing bowl, like, I forget, like 20 times. You could build the Silver Line to Dulles, like, 30 times. You could run JMU tuition-free for, like, 120 years, I think. I think those are the three <laughs> examples I used. And I said, this is just, you know, it's, it's, it's outrageous that we're spending public dollars like this. And that was... Sort of after that, I, I resolved to sort of start getting more active again. Would it be fair to characterize you as a fiscal conservative? Um, I think everybody thinks they're fiscally conservative. I mean, I think, I, you know, I don't think we should borrow lots of money to pay our bills. I mean, I think we should balance our budget. The federal government does a horrible job of that. Um, I don't think we should be, you know, spendthrift with taxpayer dollars. I think that's what most people expect when you're spending other people's money. But, um, but I, I definitely think that we need to spend more money on the government needs to spend more money on infrastructure on investing in people uh, protecting our environment things like that i just think we're, we're very chintzy um right now in terms of on on all that um so um i'm sure my republican colleagues would say that you know 
spending a lot more money on the education system or spending a lot more on transportation is not physically conservative, but I consider it to be. Right. So how do you make that argument that spending money on education is fiscally conservative? Oh, well, I think it's what it is. It's an investment in people. And I think the more you invest in people, it pays long-term dividends, which will save all of us money. If, if more people can be more productive and make more money over their entire lifetimes and people at the bottom are able to come up come up and make more money and be more productive so they're not dependent on, on government support, I think that's better for everybody. It costs all of us less money in the long run if we invest in people on the front end, whether that's through pre-K or having you know high-quality teachers that we don't tell them how to do their job all the time or um, you know, if you want to have high-quality teachers, you got to pay them a decent salary. I mean, right now, Fairfax County loses a lot of teachers to Montgomery and PG and D.C. because they can make a lot more money working across the river than they can in Virginia. Is there any way to track over decades the long-term economic impact of investment in public education? Yeah, there's been studies done about that. I mean, I remember I, I don't have any on the, on the, at the tips of my fingers right now, but I remember back when I was at JMU and I was talking to some of the one of the vice presidents, he was quoting some numbers at me about how, you know, over a lifetime, you know, college college graduate usually earns X million dollars more than somebody who isn't. So, I mean, if you can... And that's all money that's taxed, which produces right. more revenues for the state, which right. originally funded the public education. Right. right, and if you have more people that are in the boat pulling on the oar, the boat will go faster. And, you know, if, if there's more people that are making money, that's probably less taxes that i got to pay, you know, because, you know, somebody else is helping to foot the bill. So, I mean, I, I think long term, it's, it is fiscally conservative. You mentioned there are some other accomplishments that you had in addition to the Alexandria yeah. Mine Sewer Bill last session. Yeah, another big bill that I passed last year um, had to do with uh, coal ash. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if Maryland really has a coal ash problem, but but basically um, the uh, whenever you burn coal, obviously it leaves some residue, and, and over the years the power companies have had to do something with it. And what they did historically is they just, back in the 40s at least, and Prince William County. They went out and dug a hole out near the river and just th- filled it with water and threw a bunch of coal ash in it. And as soon as one filled up, they'd make another one, make another one. They have they had five different ponds down in Dumfries full of four million cubic yards of coal ash. Now, a few years ago in North Carolina, one of those burst and went right into the river, right? <clears throat> well, actually, about six years ago, a pond, a dam on a, on a coal ash pond burst and created a massive super sun site in Tennessee. And then um, while the EPA was trying to figure out how to deal with that more broadly, there was a pipe that burst under a coal ash pond in North Carolina and polluted the Dan River, which starts North Carolina, flows into Virginia, goes back to North Carolina. Mm -hmm. That's the one you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And EPA issued some rules about three years ago, I think, that basically said that utilities are not allowed to keep coal ash in wet ponds anymore. And why... Why not just put the coal ash in a hole? Why did they even ever put water in there to begin with? Probably to keep it from blowing around. If you want to dry landfill it, you have to, you have to, you know, compact it and do all the stuff to it so that when it gets windy, it doesn't blow all over the place. And mm-hmm. so um, that that's why. And so all the utilities around the country are trying to figure out how to get rid of all this wet stuff and the, the wet storage. And so down in, in Dumfries in Prince William County, they haven't burned coal there since 2003, but they got like I said, 4 million cubic yards. And Dominion's proposal was, first of all, to pump all the water and out of the... for our p- listeners who don't know, Dominion is the power company yeah. in Northern Virginia. Yeah, yeah, right. I forget they don't go across the river. Um, but Dominion wanted to uh, pump all the water out of the pond. And this is toxic ash water. Filter it and then dump it in the river. And then they wanted to put all the coal ash in a big pile, put a rubber thing over the top of it and uh, some dirt and call it a day. Just leave it landfilled for 
you know, a couple thousand years or whatever. And what I was your idea? I didn't like that. I mean, this this stuff is already it's already every single site. There's four coal ash sites in Virginia. Um, the ones in North Carolina, all of them have been shown to, to leak like crazy. They leak they leak out um, all kinds of nasty stuff like even lead. with the water or yeah. if they yeah. were dry and you just well, had rain. De- coming again, out. it's debatable. Yeah. Um, some people think that some studies suggest that if you actually landfill the stuff, it might leak faster if there's groundwater coming from the bottom. But uh, even though the landfill theoretically is filled, um, sealed, but it's 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 1970s technology. So they all um, all of these kits it leaches out like yeah. lead, arsenic, um, all kinds of really uh, hexavalent chromium, which is what made Aaron Brockovich famous. And I have constituents whose groundwater wells are polluted. Um, and, uh, and now. There's mostly municipal water and not not uh, around these, here. These well down in general, yes, but out where this where this power plant is, it's way out on a peninsula near the river, and actually, and people the, use wells. There's people out there still on wells that are near the near the near the. And so they plant. could be drinking these toxic chemicals, which could yes. be killing them. Um, or giving them cancer. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. And they're actually building a new four thousand house development right next to the thing right now. Um, it's, it's, you know, but the stuff gets into the fish and the fish swim. I mean, if you fish in the Potomac river, you got fish that are swimming through plumes of the stuff, um, you know, and it bio aggregates, you know, small. So what did you do? What did your little, your bill say? My, well, I put in a bill two years ago, which said they got to dig it up and haul it away. They got to do what's called clean closure. That bill failed. Where would they have put it if they hauled it? Um, there's actually a big landfill in Virginia that's accepting all of North Carolina's coal ash. So they, they put it in rail cars and they ship it down there. And in that particular place, would they have better sealant so yeah. that it wouldn't leach? It's a modern landfill with modern sealing standards. The ones in Dumfries are all just clay, and it's not clear if they're lined so all the way So it would cost down. maybe millions to move all no, the stuff. No, billions. Billions. One to three billion dollars is the estimated cost. To move a bunch of coal ash from one <clears throat> spot to another. Right. But the bill I put in, I put in that bill and two other bills, and the bill that ended up passing basically said, that we're not going to do anything in Virginia on coal ash at all for a one-year period. In the meantime, we're going to do a series of assessments to try and get better information to figure out what the best way to resolve it is. And so, is uh, that kicking the can down the road? No, because right now we were we were being asked to legislate about something with very little information about anything about pollution, about disaster preparedness, about cost, about um, and what a lot of states are still doing now is recycling. They take this coal ash and they turn it into concrete. Um, it, it's actually it's actually a replacement for the cement that goes into concrete. Um, instead of using Portland cement, you so can instead use, of sand, no Portland cement. Cement. Okay. Instead of using Portland Portland cement, the stuff that makes it turn hard, uh-huh. they use coal ash, and they already actually use coal ash. And actually, Virginia is importing coal ash in from other states to make concrete in Virginia right now. <laughs> instead of using the coal ash that we have out in the ponds. So, is there a, would there be a problem if there's arsenic and cadmium and no. lead in our highways? No, I mean the stuff. Once once you put it into into a into a either a, a rock type concrete or you know like a Jersey wall, a, a railroad tie. Um, somebody's talking about making bricks. It becomes inert. It, it doesn't it doesn't leach anymore. It becomes inert. So that's not really a concern. Huh? But so you can make a instead of costing a few billion dollars to relocate the pile from one place to another, you could actually use it as an economic development incentive right. and make a profit off it. Right, and that's the solution I'm favor is, is recycling. That was part of the assessment is they had to look at different recycling options to try and figure out whether or not, you know, that would work and whether it was economically feasible. And, you know, it's, the problem is, is there's four different sites. And, for example, it's, it's really so, so bad that down in Chesapeake, the, the coal ash site in Chesapeake, they actually constructed an island in the middle of the river made out of coal ash. And that one's the subject of litigation. The court, uh, the federal judge, just found they're in violation of the Clean Water Act. 
But um, so they dumped so much coal ash in the river that it made an island. They made a <laughs> they made an island in the river out of coal ash. They also built an entire golf course out of coal ash, which now nobody will nobody wants to own. It's, it's like just sitting there stranded. Um, and, and the site in Chesterfield, the Chesterfield coal ash dump is actually in the in the former part of the James River back in the. And this is mostly from power generation yeah. of coal fired plants. Yeah, back in the. Turn of the century, the James River had all these big squiggles in it, and they went through and cut cut out a bunch of them so ships wouldn't have to go so far. And Dominion is has is using one of the former river channels as a coal ash dump. Hmm. And I mean, it's you know it's below flood. I mean, it's it's easily in the hundred year floodplain. I mean, yeah. Um, and it's that one's very at risk. Yeah. And Dominion's actually building a brand new dry dry landfill at that location to take all their new. That's the only place they're still burning coal, but. Um, they're they're making a dry landfill to put it there. So Scott, as we approach the end of this podcast, clearly you are you may be viewed by environmentalists as a champion of their right. policy uh, agendas. I'd like to ask you a final two part question, which is to reflect uh, and suppose that you're speaking to your constituents uh, in Mount Vernon. I'd like to ask you to reflect on why it is that you sought to advance a public interest through these pieces of legislation, through your political work, through your law firm, and then what you hope your legacy will be when all is said and done. Right. Well, actually, my number one focus has been the Route 1 corridor, because that's what I represent the Route 1 all the way from, from Alexandria to Stafford. But um, my motivation on Route 1, on everything, is, you know, I'd, I'd like our community to be a place where my children want to come back to and where they want to live and live out the rest of their life. I mean, I want, to, I want our community to be a place that's an attractive, welcoming, um, environmentally friendly um, thriving place, and um, you know the every, that, that's been my number. That's sort of my overarching. You want to make objective. a thirteenth generation? Yeah, fourteenth, <laughs> thirteenth, <laughs> uh, and fourteenth. Right, my third, my kids are the thirteenth. So the, yeah, I want them to come back and make a fourteenth. Right, but um, but you know, the, I've been trying on the Route One corridor to get um, get the metro extended down there for the last eight years. We finally got some redoing the entire zoning plan now, based on a two million dollar study that I secured about. Seven years ago, um, the Route One corridor is going to be radically transformed over the next twenty years because of some of the, the groundwork that I helped to. Probably lay. a good place to invest. Yeah, yeah. If you, want to, <laughs> yeah. if you want to buy a house, sure, it'd be a great place to invest. The property value is going to go way up there in the next twenty years. But, um, but you know, that's my objective. That's why I think we need to invest in 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 the environment. We need to invest in education. We need to make sure our schools are high quality schools that drives employment, makes businesses come here, it helps our children be productive, it helps people rise up. Um, you know, we need to invest in our higher education system so that once you get out of good, high-quality public schools, you, you know, you have affordable higher education choices in the state. We have a great system, but it's totally underfunded. Um, you know, and we need to have a, you know, I'm also, like I said, I'm a practicing lawyer. Criminal justice reform is used to me. Our, our, our criminal and civil justice system in Virginia needs a lot of work um, so that we have a fair, we have fair rules out there for everybody. We don't get this, you know, don't have the school-to-prison pipeline situation we have right now. And, we have a state that just overpunishes people on things. I mean, so there's a lot of different things that are the focus of my effort to you know, make Virginia and my district a, a better place. And that has been Scott Serval, a Virginia state senator and former delegate and a, uh, an attorney who speaks about uh, his efforts to improve the health of the environment, to improve investment in infrastructure, speaks of himself as a progressive who is uh, conscious of where public funds come from and thus leads to some extent, to his identification as a fiscal conservative. Uh, Scott has a goal of creating a thriving community in which future generations would wish to return to. Uh, and uh, all of his efforts seem to go 
uh, towards that one goal, advancing the public interest by creating a thriving community in Northern Virginia. So, Scott, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.